gets to enter a building together. How many of you are guilty of saying, I'm going to church? No, Sunday's just the day we get to come together and come into a building and be together. And I love that because we anticipate the day where one day we will always be together in the presence of our Lord. And, and that's what we get to do every Sunday, and my soul's already been fed. We're going to look at Luke chapter 14 as we continue going through the book of Luke this morning. Luke chapter 14 is our focus this morning, and we're going to get through hopefully the first 14 verses. One of the old church fathers, Augustine, said this, and I like this quote. He said, it was pride that turned angels into devils and humility that makes men as angels. It was pride that turned angels into devils and humility that makes men as angels. Pride is one of those things that is really easy to spot in other people. How many of you have been guilty of calling somebody a proud, arrogant, and I won't go the rest of the statement? Yeah, we, we've, we can see pride really easy in somebody else, right? It, it is easy to spot. We can spot it a mile away. But humility is a character trait that once you think you have it mastered, guess what? You've just gone and screwed it up. Once you think that you have arrived with humility, you, you, have, you have just done messed up, haven't you? Nothing will humble a man or a woman like a clear understanding of who he is and what the gospel is. Nothing will humble a person than, than, than sitting and actually actively participating in a communion service and realizing, I'm not worthy to even to partake in this. It's only because of what Christ has done. In Jesus' day, some of the proudest individuals were religious leaders, and I would go as far as even say not just religious leaders, but the religious people of his day. They were some of the most arrogant people of his day. And... and and they prided themselves on their ability to know the Old Testament law and the prophets. They, they, they were so proud of that that they knew it, and they prided themselves on this on top of that. Not only did they know it, but they knew how to enforce it in the lives of others. And they knew how to keep it better than the ordinary people of the day. And there's a great danger in pride. There's a great danger in pride. And I want you, I want you to hear this this morning. If you get nothing else, here is the great danger of being proud. Because pride produces something in our hearts that will damn every one of us to hell. You know what pride produces? It produces self-righteousness. Pride produces this, this feeling, this, this idea that I am righteous enough, I am good enough, I can produce enough goodness that I don't need the righteousness of God. And if we're not careful, every single one of us in this room is guilty of being very self-righteous. Self-righteous people don't see their need for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because after all, if I can produce enough righteousness, I don't need anybody else's righteousness. And here's the thing, until you see your need for the righteousness of Jesus Christ, you are on a one-way ticket right straight to the gates of hell. But even children of God, followers of Jesus, fall back into self-righteous thinking and those types of patterns of self-righteousness. And so this morning, 
in our text, we're going to see that Jesus has been invited to a dinner. He's been invited to a dinner on the Sabbath day at a religious leader's house. That very very statement that I just said there, Jesus being invited to a dinner at a religious leader's house on the Sabbath day ought to make us go, hmm, hmm, something doesn't smell right here. And what we're going to see is that Jesus turns the tables on the self-righteous in the room, and, and he, he, uses, he uses what they wanted to use against him to reveal in their own hearts their own self-righteousness and their own hypocrisy. And so this morning, I've had you turn to Luke 14. I'm going to read the first 14 verses this morning. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Let's stop right there. I used to think as a kid, dropsy meant that where everyone just like fell down. I'm not much smarter today, okay? <laughs> Thankfully, there's Google. Dropsy is a condition that we would know as edema. It's a swelling. Okay, it's indicative of something else going on wrong in a person's body. Okay, it, it, it could have been a heart issue. Um, how many of you ever heard of congestive heart failure and the fact that you retain fluid? Okay, that would be edema. That would be dropsy. Cancer can cause this. There's something going on in the body that's causing this man to retain a bunch of fluid. Okay, so before you think this guy just keeps falling down in the room, no. Okay. Behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you will both come to you and will say, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. These are the words of our Lord. Father, this morning as we would open your word and hear the very voice of the God of heaven as he speaks on the pages of the scriptures, I pray that you would today do heart surgery in all of us, that that the scalpel of God's word would cut our hearts bare, reveal our pride to us, Help us not just to leave here admitting that we can be proud, but may we see the ugliness of pride. May we see its effects in our lives and in the lives of those around us as we act pridefully. 
Lord, for those today who have never humbled themselves before you, may today be the day that they are humbled so that you might lift them up. Father, we, we desire to, to grow and to learn and to be changed because of our time in your word this morning. So we ask that you would accomplish these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you first to see this morning how Jesus absolutely silences a dinner party. How many of you have been to a, have been invited to dinner, like a, a group, you know, where maybe there's people that, there's some close friends, but then there's some people you don't know in the room too, and, and so there's always awkward conversation, right? And it always takes somebody who is the, the master of conversation. Several weeks ago, my friend Sam Brock was here, he addressed you in the, in the morning service, and we, we had occasion on Monday after that to go out to dinner with some, fr- some friends of ours from the past, and there were six cu- or three couples there, six of us together, and we got to that awkward point in conversation where we had done all the catching up, and now it was like, what are we going to talk about? Sam is a master in those situations, and he just popped a couple questions off. And he looked at me, and he said, Dan, why don't you tell these guys what you like to do in your free time? And I'm like, Sam, why don't you shut up? <laughs> And so when I gave an answer that he didn't like, he turned to the next person. Hey, what do you like to do in your free time? And so by that time, the fourth guy over here is ready, and he's like, oh, he's ready to give a big answer. I'm like, idiot, you had, the, you had the cheat. You know, you already knew what was happening here. And so I turned the tables on Sam, and I thought I'd throw him a hard question, and he answers it easily, and I'm like, oh, whatever. <laughs> Point being... Anytime you're in a company of people that you're not around with all the time, you tend to put on a little bit of an air, don't you? And you tend to act a little bit differently, and you don't let the guard down. And here we see Jesus in verse 1 of chapter 14. He's been invited to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. This guy isn't just a Pharisee. He's probably the guy who's in charge of the synagogue in that town, wherever it is that they're, that they're having dinner at, okay? And so this would be the post the post-meeting lunch. This would have been what you and I experienced on Sunday afternoon, what a generation ago used to experience when you left church, you went home and the roast was cooking in the oven and all that stuff, right? That's just a pipe dream right now, right? Okay? And we're just like grabbing Wendy's on the way home and we're hoping to get PB&J when we walk in the door, right? So, so this would be that meal. And so, so the ruler of the, of the synagogue, this Pharisee, this ruler of the Pharisees, has now invited people into his home. It's a big deal to get invited to his house, okay? And so, and so he has several tables that would be set up in, in like a horseshoe. He has several tables set up probably in this great room of his house. And he has people who are ready to serve the meal there. And, and as they come in... Jesus comes in, and, and we don't know where Jesus sits. It's interesting that Luke doesn't give that for us. But, but as he comes in, notice what Luke records about these people in this room. They're watching him carefully. They're watching him. They're scrutinizing him. They, they are looking for a reason, okay? Jesus is being set up. That's really what's happening here. Jesus is being set up. They, they are just waiting for something to happen, and, and, and they've got all the right conditions here in place for something to happen because they have a ringer who's about to enter in verse 2. The ringer is this man who was swelled up with, with edema, with dropsy. Okay, He is a sick man. Luke draws attention to it with the first two words of verse 2 when he says, And behold... 
Okay, if we're if we're writing this as a TV melodrama or something, the music would change when this guy comes in the room. Okay, when this guy comes in the room, everybody's like, wait a minute. Because there's several things at play here that we have to understand. This man, especially on the Sabbath day, especially in a religious leader's house, would have been considered to be an unclean guy. The the Pharisees, the religious leaders would have said, God is judging you, obviously, because you are so swelled up with this water retention. You're a sick man. God is judging you. You have no business eating here, and yet he's an invited guest into the Pharisee's house. No one says a word to this guy when he comes in. Any other Sabbath, any other day, this guy walks into the Pharisee's house. You're not welcome come here, you're unclean. But on this day when Jesus is there, he comes in. He's the bait. He's the bait. He's also a useful pawn for the Pharisees. Do, do you get do you get what's going on in these fairs? There's, there's no care, there's no concern for this guy's physical condition at all. There, there's really no desire to get, make sure this guy gets a good meal. He is just useful to them because they're going to just use him to accomplish their purposes here. And I love it. What's interesting to note is, and what we've noticed in the book of Luke is, is Jesus does a lot of work on the Sabbath day, doesn't he? It seems that a lot of what Luke records in terms of Jesus' acts of mercy happens on what day of the week? It's on the Sabbath day. And so the Pharisees notice a pattern too, and so they're like, okay, so, so Jesus is in town here. Um, we, we, we've got him here. Let's invite him over for dinner, and let's put a sick person right in his path, right? Normally... They would bring it up to Jesus, but Jesus doesn't give them a chance here, does he? Jesus goes on the offensive here. Jesus goes on the offensive here. And rather than waiting for them to pose the question, in verses 3 and 4, he just totally shuts the door on any communication. And so he asks them a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Okay? Remember, ruler of the Pharisees. Guy who understands the law inside and out. You don't just become a ruler of the Pharisees. You have to work your way up. You have to be really knowledgeable. And you have to be somebody who is committed to keeping all these rules. Do you think, church, do you think he knows whether or not it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Does he know? He knows the answer to this question, does he not? He, he knows the ins and outs of the law. He knows every loophole. He knows every little classification. He knows how through their oral traditions in the Talmud, how it's been handed down through generations. He understands. He knows how to answer this. And because he doesn't answer, all the rest of the people who are in there, who are Pharisees and religious leaders, what are they going to do? Well, if he's not going to answer, I'm not going to answer. Right? Just so that you're clear on this, Nowhere in Moses' law does Moses prohibit, does God prohibit an act of mercy on the Sabbath day, okay? Nowhere is there a prohibition of an act of mercy on the Sabbath day, okay? So, so let's understand something. The answer to the question is a resounding what? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? What's the answer, church? Yes. It's very allowable under the law. So... Here's the conundrum, though. Jesus has really, he's taken them and he has put them on the horns of a dilemma. I love it when Jesus does this. 
Because here's the problem. If they say it's unlawful, if they say it's unlawful and, and, it, and it keeps him from healing the man, then, then they've lost the reason why they brought Jesus there, right? Because what do they want him to do? They want him to heal, don't they? They want him to do it. So if they say it's unlawful, he's not, he might not do it. If they say it's lawful, though, what's the problem? We, we can't trap him in anything, can we? So, so the wisdom of God here. And so what does Jesus do? He heals the man. You see it there in verse 4. They remained silent. He took him, healed him, and sent him away. Obviously, he's not wanted there as a dinner guest. And so this guy comes, he gets healed by Jesus, and he gets sent away. And before the Pharisees can say, aha, Jesus again goes on the offensive in verse 5, and he said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that's fallen into a well, and that word that's translated son in the ESV could also be translated donkey, which of you having a donkey or an ox that's fallen into a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? They're all looking around the room. And they're all realizing, you over there, I remember when you pulled your donkey out of the well. You over there, I remember when, when your ox was hurt and, and you had to take care of him. And, and they're all like, um, we can't answer this. Look at verse 6, they could not reply to these things couldn't reply. And so here's what Jesus is saying here. If you would care for your donkey or your son or your ox, how could you not literally, who's, actually he uses a great illustration here. He's like, if you would not care for your animal that's drowning in a well, how could you not care for a man right here who's drowning in his own bodily fluid? And what's happened here is, is he's revealed their hypocrisy. And mark it down. Hypocrisy is one of the number one outward manifestations of inward pride. It is. Hypocrisy is one of the number one outward manifestations of inward pride. Their hypocrisy revealed is revealed now and their silence and, and, and everybody in the room understands what Jesus has said. You don't care about the man as much as you care about your farm animals. Friend, what you care about says a lot about how you view God. What you care about says a lot about how you view God. What you care about says a lot about his hold on your life. And so Jesus has now used a situation where they were going to entrap him to actually put the burden back on them. And he's not going to stop here. He's not going to stop. Jesus has a great opportunity. And so he's going to move right into giving a parable. And so secondly, I want you to see that now after he's revealed their hypocrisy, he's now going to expose their pride. And he, he's not going to stop with the outward manifestation. He's going to deal with the inward heart problem. And I love that about God. He doesn't just clean us up on the outside. He wants to go to the heart issues, doesn't he? And Jesus is going right to the heart issue here. He's going right to the heart issue. And it's a heart issue that most of us don't want to admit that we have. But most of us in this room are dealing with the same heart issue. 
And so he gives this parable. And the parable goes this way. Verse 7. He talks to those who have been invited. Notice he says that in verse 7. And, and he wants to give them the parable, and, and especially as he's observing the room. Jesus has observed the room, okay? And so picture in your mind with me. I almost put it up on stage this morning, but I didn't want to disrupt Pastor Andy. I mean, Pastor Andy was in trouble already. He already knocked over the guitar and the microphone and everything else this morning. I was going to arrange seats up here to kind of give you a view of what this would be like. But think, think of a large room in, in a wealthy person's home somewhere in, in the Judean countryside here, and maybe in a little village, and in this great room, they've cleared out all the furniture except they put three tables, and these tables are only 18 inches off of the ground, and they're shaped in the shape of a horseshoe, okay? So there's one table in the center, there's one table over here, there's one table over here, okay? Probably that would allow you to, the typical table that we know of from that time would allow you to entertain close to 30 guests, maybe, 20, maybe nine at a table, 27 people in this room, okay? At the center table, at the bottom of the horseshoe, y'all tracking with me? Okay, y'all tracking with me? At the bottom of the horseshoe would be, would be the, the, the homeowner, would be the ruler of the Pharisees. He is reclined at the center of the center table. Okay? He would be there as the guests arrive. Because he is a wealthy man, he would have servants that would meet people. He would be there. Okay, And as people arrived and showed up, they would start to look around the room. Something that you do when you go into a new place of employment or something like that, you have to figure out the pecking order, right? Freshmen go through it at high school, right? right? They have to figure out the pecking order. That's how most freshmen end up in locked-in lockers for the whole first week of school. And teachers are wondering, where are, where are all my freshmen? Well, they're hidden in a locker somewhere because the upperclassmen shoved them in there right? There's always a pecking order. So there's a pecking order here in this, in this great room. And as people are coming in, they're choosing their seats, right? Who are, the, who are supposed to be sitting next to the, the, to the owner here, next to the, next to the host? Who's supposed to be sitting there? Well, it's his honored guest, right? Imagine the horror of you walking in and thinking, oh man, you know, Joseph and I go way back. I mean, past high school. We went to elementary school together. I'm sure he wants me close. And you sit right down next to him only to, only to have somebody else more important than you come in and you realize, oops. And a servant comes and taps you on the shoulder, sir, you're, you're down here. Or even worse, sir, you're at this table over here. And so that's what Jesus is, is going through here. So, so as I read this again, get this in your thinking here. Verse 8, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you will both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. Rather, he says, when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. Now, just keep in mind here, Jesus is not being Emily Post. He's not just giving social tips here. This is a parable, right? This is a parable. This has spiritual meaning, okay? This is something that they would have all experience, though, going to a wedding or being invited to somebody's house, okay? This isn't just social advice, and what he's saying here is, stop thinking of yourself more important than what you are. 
Stop thinking of yourself more important than what you are. He says, when you go in, you go to the lowest seat. When you come in, you don't go to the place of honor. And what he's saying is, he's saying to these religious leaders, stop claiming the place of honor in the kingdom of God. Instead, humble yourself and go sit at the outer table. But the uber-religious, let's understand, the way that they got so uber-religious was, is they thought they were going to get the place of honor in the kingdom of heaven, right? That's part of their thinking. And even Bible-believing Christians who, who came to faith in Jesus Christ, they can adopt this mindset where I'm doing it better than most of my brothers and sisters here. I get a seat closer to Jesus. We're going to be really surprised when we get to heaven and we see the people who are really seated close to Jesus. Do you know that? We're going to be really surprised. You know... Every Presbyterian thinks it's going to be a Presbyterian. Every Baptist thinks it's going to be a big B Baptist sitting there. And here's the thing. It's only the humble who will be sitting close to Jesus. It's only the humble. It's only the humble. We're going to skip verse 11. We're going to come back to that. Because there's a second part. There's a second part to this. So he talks to the people who are seated there. Then verse 12, he said to the man who had invited him. So, so he turns and he addresses the guy at the center table who is there at, at the bottom of that horseshoe, who's there reclined and eating. He's the VIP in the room, right? He turns and he addresses him and he says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. <laughs> now think about this. Who do you suppose is seated at these tables? Who's seated there, church? Friends, brothers, rich neighbors, right? Okay. So he, he's indicting this man for who he's invited. And he says, here's why you don't invite them. Here's why you don't do it. Do you see it there at the end of verse 12? Lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. It's the law of reciprocity. It's the reason why some of you in this room who are antisocial turn down every invitation to somebody's house or to go out to dinner because you don't want to have to return it. Some of you in this room, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you in this room, you know what I'm talking about. You, you don't want to have to return the favor. It's too much pressure to put on somebody, right? So here, here's what Jesus is saying. Don't invite only those who can repay you. Don't invite those who will give you a dinner in return. And let's understand, Pharisee, Pharisees and, and the religious, they used an occasion like this as a bargaining chip. It's a big deal. It's a big deal in the community to be able to be said, I got invited to the ruler of the, the synagogue's house today for lunch. Did you get invited? No, no, I got invited. We're going. We're going for lunch. And this is a way, a way that they used to, to, to trade and to barter, to gain influence, so that those who are ambitious could move up the religious ladder. There's always a secondary motive for a dinner invitation to a religious leader's home. There's always. Some of you are going to be like, I'm never answering an invitation to PD's home ever again. But in this situation here, there, there's an ulterior motive here. To be invited to this meant that you were going to be asked to do something in return. 
And so there's always an ulterior motive. Even the sick man who was invited was invited for an ulterior motive. So Jesus says, don't don't invite the people who who can repay you. What does he say? Who, Who are we supposed to invite? Look at verse 13. When you give a feast... Invite more of the people that that I just healed. Invite more of them. Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And he says, in doing so, look at verse 14, you're going to be blessed. You're going to be blessed because they cannot repay you. He says, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So, So what he's saying here is, invite people who cannot possibly ever repay you for your kindness. And what Jesus is doing here, he is revealing, even to the people who have been invited here, the ulterior motive of the man who invited them. And what he's doing here is he's saying, you are, you're inviting people in so that they can give something to you, so that you can use them. And he says the opposite of what you should do and the way you actually should choose who you invite is, is look around and see, who, see around you people who need grace and kindness and, and invite them. And invite them. As Luke writes this, he slips in something for the first time in this book. This is the first mention of the word resurrection in this book. This is the first mention of it. And and, and at the end of verse 14, it's like, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. It's the first first time he mentions it. And and what he's acknowledging is, and and for some of those religious leaders in that room, they didn't believe that there was going to be a resurrection. And so so now Jesus, by his very words, is, is affirming to them that there will be a resurrection. But he says this, you're going to be blessed. It's not just a future blessing. There is a future reward in eternity for those who do that. You really truly can store up treasures in heaven, but there is an earthly blessing too. But let's understand something here about those who are the religious, those who are the Pharisees. They're only focused on what they can receive now in this life. They don't care about the rest. How do I know that? Because it's evidenced by the fact that they use a sick man for their own purposes. And now Jesus has exposed their hypocrisy and he's exposed their pride. It's prideful thinking that that thinks that you're better than others and that you can use them for your own purposes. It's prideful thinking. And you say, well, yeah, I can point the fingers at, at government officials. I can, I can point the fingers at my boss. I can, po- I can point the fingers at, at, at the man who's always trying to stick it to me. Point the finger at your own heart. Every single one of us deals with this. Left to ourselves, we will all use other people. And so we skipped one verse in here that we got to go back to. And that's where I want to end up this morning, is in verse 11. Because, because not only has he exposed, in the first six verses, with the healing of this man, he's exposed their hypocrisy. Now, through the telling of this parable, he's exposed their pride, which is the root cause of their hypocrisy. It's the root sin, if you will. Now he's going to give a hopeful message. 
He's going to give a hopeful message here in verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In the middle of this parable, in the middle of Jesus' application of this spiritual truth, he gives us a ray of hope in the middle of it. There's gospel there in verse 11. Whether or not you see it, it's there. Let me help you to understand it. There's hope for prideful hearts. There's even hope for these Pharisees' hearts, if they'll just listen here. Do you, do you understand, do you fathom the grace of Christ that, that, he stand, that he's eating dinner in a room with people that are eventually going to be some of the ones that are going to charge him and put him to death? And he's offering to them hope? What grace? What grace here? And here's the truth that he gives. God will humble the proud. God will humble the proud. And the second part of that is, God will lift up the humble. Okay? That's, that's the truth that he is giving here in verse 11. James repeats it in chapter 4 and verse 6 of the book of James where he puts it this way. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is where the hope is. This is where the hope is, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Who's doing the humbling there? Who is the unnamed person who's doing the humbling there in verse 11? It's Almighty God himself. And here's what Jesus is saying. You, you can spend your life lifting yourself up. You can spend your life now making sure you get noticed, making sure that everybody knows the job title you have where you work, making sure everybody knows that you got the promotion, making sure that everybody knows that you're a great father, making sure that everybody knows that you're a great athlete. You can spend your life pumping yourself up only to find out that at the end you're going to be cut down. You say, well, that's unbelievers who do that. No, that's believers who do that too. Well, we're the only church in this town preaching the Bible. Well, let's get a big head about that. Or maybe we should pray for the other churches. Well, we're the only ones doing it the right way. Yeah, right. If this is the right way, man, God help us all. We can get a big head of pride too. And let's face it, we all like to think that we're doing it well. We all like to think we're getting it better than most of us around us. No one ever celebrates being number two. We're number two. We're mediocre. But notice what he says in the second part of verse 11. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, there, there's hope here. The, the, the way up is to actually go down. Is that what you, did you see it here? The, the way up is to go down. God gives grace. That's the message of the gospel. And, and, and what he's saying is, the one who humbles himself, the one who understands that we all sin, that we all rebel against our creator God, that we all, because of that, deserve death, that we all deserve to be eternally separated from God, God reaches down to those people and he bestows grace on them. Do you see how close the Pharisees are here? Do you see how close they are? 
Literally, salvation has come to the door of this man's house in Christ. And they've just witnessed the grace of Christ. Have they not? Have they not just witnessed the grace of Christ here? A man that they brought in to use for their own purposes, Jesus thwarts that whole thing. He heals the man. That man returns. He is completely changed by Christ. They've just witnessed the grace of Christ. But they're so far. They're so close, but they're so far. How do I know that? Because we're just going to go a few chapters. It may take us months to get a few chapters, okay? Don't, don't hold it against me. You just go a few chapters ahead to Luke chapter 18, and what do you find? You find the Pharisee standing on the corner praying to God, and, and next to him is the lowly tax collector who won't even look up to heaven, and, he, and he's sitting there beating on his chest in total mourning. He's like, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And this Pharisee is like, God, I thank you that I'm not like this dude over here. He is pathetic. There's some of us who are children of God who have adopted a lot of pharisaical attitudes, though. God, I am thankful that I'm not like these people. I'm thankful that I'm not scraping by every week to make ends meet. And, and obviously, they've done something wrong in their life, and they've made some poor life choices, and they have to deal with that, God, because I'm better than them. You know what you call that? Pride. And it's ugly. And it's very ugly. Here's the thing. Every single one of us who walks on this earth will be humbled by God. Let me say it again. Every single one of us who walks on this earth will be humbled by God. I'm going to date myself. It's like the old Fram commercial. You can be humbled now or you can be humbled later. You can pay now or you can pay later. See, you're going to be humbled by one of two things. And there's only two things that will truly humble a person. I'm, I'm convinced of this. There's only two things that will humble a person. It's either the gospel that will humble you or it's God's judgment that will humble you. Either way, you will be humbled by God. It's far better to be humbled by the gospel it's far better to be humbled by the gospel because in the gospel there's hope. In the gospel we, we find ourselves miserably broken and where we're not broken the gospel just demolishes the whole house. Have you figured that out? That the gospel just takes anything that we have that's good in our life and it just burns it down to the ground so that we can receive something far better, the righteousness of Christ. You'll either be humbled by the gospel, or you'll be humbled by the hand of God in judgment. But make no mistake, you will be humbled. You see, there's, there's no proud people in eternity. That's one thing I can tell you about eternity. There's no proud people in eternity. <clears throat> How do I know that? Well, there's gonna be a group of those who have been ransomed who are in God's presence, who, who just, is this not one of the most humbling things you do in the course of your life, taking communion? If you do it right, it should be humbling. In, in an eternity, guess what we're doing? 
We're communing with our Lord, the one who died for us, and we understand that we don't deserve the glory of heaven. We don't deserve the riches of his grace, but we're going to take them because he's humbled us by his gospel. So in heaven, there's no proud people. Guess what? In hell, there's no proud people either because they've been humbled by the judgment of God. They, they know, finally, they know firmly that, that, that he is Lord. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. There's no proud people in eternity. And so today, if you're here and you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you've, if you've never ever encountered his salvation, if, if you've never ever realized that you're a sinner and that you need to repent of that sin, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to, to humble yourself under his hand so that he will lift you up. The time is now to stop trusting in your self-righteousness. Can I say it again? Your self-righteousness will damn you to hell. And it's time to receive his salvation. But I'm going to guess that a majority of this room this morning are people just like me who are walking with Christ but are still battling pride. Anybody else in that group with me? It's going to, I got bad news and good news. <laughs> the bad news is it's probably going to be a lifelong struggle. It's going to probably be a lifelong struggle to battle pride. But, but the good news is, is that we have on the pages of God's word, the gospel in every book of this Bible. And that the more that we read this Bible, the more that the gospel humbles us. You see, we're all like the man who had dropsy. We're all drowning in our pride. And we need rescued the same way that this man was rescued by Jesus and healed physically. We, we all need that spiritual healing or we're, or we're drowning in our pride. There are no proud people in eternity. Far better to be humbled in this life and prepared for eternity than to have to wait till you get to, to, to the judgment seat and be humbled for eternity and be judged for eternity. Father, we thank you for your word. And when I think of the Pharisees, how close they were and yet so far away they really truly were. They witnessed an incredible act of mercy and kindness. And yet they didn't understand that they needed that for themselves. They didn't just need physical healing. They needed spiritual healing because they were drowning in their own hypocrisy and pride. Lord, for those in this room, for those who are listening online, who, who don't, don't know your salvation, who have not humbled themselves, may today be the day that they're humbled by the gospel. For those, Lord who are your children. Lord, we confess the sin of pride to you. We confess it in all its ugliness. We confess it in, in, in all the ways that, that it permeates our living and our thinking. Forgive us for thinking we're better than others. Forgive us for thinking we're a little bit closer to the, to the, to the seat of honor than others, Lord. May we all be what Jesus said. May we, may we lower ourselves. May we take the, the seat of, of, of absolute dishonor 
so that you might lift us up. We love you. We thank you for the gospel that does rescue us and lift us up. Not only are we justified and sanctified, but one day we're going to be glorified because of this gospel. And we praise you for that. May we live this week humble lives that are humbled by your gospel each day, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.